Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast. And this podcast is in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University, where I am a Homerton Changemaker Ambassador. And hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company I set up with colleagues to enable people to live longer, healthier lives. So today we're going to continue our first series, The Art of Healthy Longevity. And in this series, I've been interviewing artists of all disciplines to learn about how they deal with their wellness, tips for us in the general population and learnings and insight for me as a medic, because, of course, we must embrace the best in medicine and in science. But I feel that clinicians often fall short of suggestions for what to tell their patients on how to feel well. What else can patients do to feel well is the pertinent question. Now, today I have a really, really lovely guest. She was introduced to me by a very trusted friend and colleague, Dr. Boone Lim, an eminent cardiologist in central London, who is one of the most caring and compassionate individuals and clinicians I have ever met. And he said to me, Millie, you have to interview this lady. And although I've only spoken to her on one occasion, it certainly left a deep and lasting mark on me. She grew up in the Punjab and then came to the UK and she'll tell us a little bit about that. And she was interested in initially becoming a poet, was a talented writer, but it migrated into the art world and became an artist and subsequently trained in Sheffield University as an art therapist, followed by formal training as a psychotherapist. And she put these two disciplines together to help many individuals, particularly young children. And I will like to explore her work with young children, particularly with eating disorders, which I found fascinating, an excellent approach to this condition. And she more in, recently has retired as an art therapist and now has gone back to her writing. And one of the things that she does extremely well is combined how she manages her own wellness with meditation into her writing to envision a better world. And that is going to be a fascinating discussion. So join me in welcoming Sunda Walker. Sunda, welcome. Thank you, Millie. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you here. And um, as I said, and I, and I meant it, I was so impressed when I spoke to you. You have such a depth and your softness and compassion, even though it was over the phone, really resonated with me. And I, I'm really looking forward to exploring with you, you know, where you've come from and how you became an art therapist. Maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit about your journey to art. Well, thank you very much, Millie. You've really written me up too high. I'm just an ordinary person like everybody else. And my interest in art started in my mid-30s. I was more interested in writing and publishing short stories and books before that. And it was a change maker, a Jewish lady called Golda Rose, who found me one day and told me to go to her studio. She saw some of my drawings and asked me what I did with them. And I said, I just used them for my children and then rubbed them out. And she said, no, come to my studio. And she was doing a lot of art therapy with women. Initially, I didn't like spending time there. I thought I was taking it away from my two young children and home. I was a very busy housewife. But she, on the third or fourth day, I really got into it and didn't know what time it was or anything. And she liked my paintings because she said they were spontaneous and I had a very 
good sense of color. I didn't need to even select a color. It came to me. And she stopped me going to um, university to get training in art. She said, I'll lose what I've got. Instead, she persuaded me to go into art therapy, which I did. Well, interesting that you mentioned the colour, because um, when Boone showed me your work, I was struck by the vibrant orange colours. It made me feel good. And, and was this inspired by, you know, where you grew up or was it just that's what's inside of your heart? I think some of the vibrancy might be to do with the living in the tropics. But I use blues, oranges and other colors in a lower spectrum as they come to me, depending on my subject. Mm. The one I did for Boone is a very big painting, and orange seemed to be very much a part of it, with very, very uh, strong blue. Interesting, because maybe that you were inspired by your subject. Now, for those of people who won't know Boone. Boone is a very charismatic individual, but he really exhibits blue sky thinking, but he has a heart of gold. So the orange and blue, I think, is perfect for Boone. I think certainly he played a very strong part in my image because I idealise him to some extent because of his complete dedication to his patients. Well, that is the ultimate compliment any patient can give to their clinician. Thank you for that. So you you then discovered your talent in an art and you put it together with your writing by helping some of the children, didn't you? You helped them tell their stories through art. Yes, uh, I spent quite a lot of a long time working with children, particularly children from multi-ethnic backgrounds. They were referred to me by charities who were mostly of West Indian origin and children with multidimensional problems, really. Some of them were suffering from um, appetite problems, not eating, and some of them were suffering from anxiety. And one child I remember was mute, elective mute, because his father had left in a hurry. Mm, that must have been devastating. And how did you help that child? Um, it was interesting. I asked him to do a painting and I generally write if the child can't write the story they tell me. But because he couldn't speak or he chose not to speak, he painted a big black shoe on the canvas, a big, big black boot. And I guess that must have been his father's shoe. Oh, interesting. And I, I said to him, this reminds me very much of your dad. Is it your dad's shoe? And he nodded his head. And after a while, he started crying. And he then talked a little bit and he got better as the session progressed. Gosh, the, the loss had caused him to lose his voice. That's incredible. And did he continue to improve then, uh, Sunda? He did, with the help of his mom. And we talked about the circumstances in the way his father disappeared from the life. He had gone back to Ghana without discussing or talking to the child. And the shock would shock had been too much for him. Hmm. He obviously was very close to his dad. 
Yeah. And, and did those benefits persist into adulthood or did you have any subsequent follow up? Because that would be really intriguing to see if there was long lasting benefits to art therapy or was it short lived? I generally see, uh, see children for six to eight weeks and then I do a follow up. I have a session six months or so later on. And from his mother's story was that he'd gone to school. He started uh, infant school and he was making good progress. Not only that, he was quite into painting as well. <laughs> he liked the sugar paper and uh, the kind of messiness of the paint he used because it was tempera paint and he enjoyed doing it. Interesting. And that's fascinating. Did you get the love of painting and colour from your parents? Did they inspire you to paint? Not in, in, in the same way, because when I was a child, I was in, in a little village and there weren't any art materials apart from the sand. I mean, you could draw on the sand with a stick or something, but there weren't any any mediums to have. But one of my sisters was very artistic, but in a different way. She was into textiles and different designs and colors. So I was always fascinated with her uh, sewing skills. Mm. And, and she would design my clothes and use colors. And so by the time I'd come here, I'd, I had really developed an eye for art. Interesting. And it's interesting that you say that, you know, your sister was into textiles and that helped you you live and survive if you were, you know, coming from a, a small and, and maybe underprivileged area in society that you're using art to sustain yourself. And we heard this from um, Donald Samet, a hand surgeon who operates on leprosy victims in Nepal, and he gives them back their hands. Literally, they cannot survive hand to mouth without their hand function. And I think this is another example of how art can help people improve themselves survive and feel good at the same time. Indeed, indeed. I think, in fact, if an artist can't paint, it must be the most painful thing because an aspect of your life goes. Yes. Um, even now, I mean, I'm doing a lot more writing, but I'm also painting. And this morning I've just colored a base of uh, a canvas and I'm going to do a portrait of my late husband with me. Oh, interesting. Well, and that's another way that art can improve longevity. And, and we heard this as well in another example podcast where I spoke to Sarah May Marshall Knight, who was repurposing gold, Granny's gold. And, and another artist had um, painted something that one of her clients actually bought to re remind her of her uh, deceased father. And, and now you're giving an example of how you're immortalizing the memory of your husband the way you choose to through art. It's fascinating for longevity. Yes, indeed. And uh, I mean, I had 14 years of painting full time with my studio in Cumbria. And I had uh, 14 awards from the Arts Council because I exhibited so many times and I was written up in papers and things. So art has done a lot for me. It has given me fulfillment and it has shown me the path in my life. Interesting. Um, so fulfillment and your path, because not many people are, are fortunate. Not everybody discovers their purpose. But what was your path in life? What do you feel your purpose in life was that art gave you? Well, I think from the beginning of the new century, I think in 2000, 
I found Vipassana meditation, which uh, really has been a very, very strong part in my daily living because I uh, do meditation for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, and it improved my heart tremendously. It improved my expression and uh, and also my dedication to it. Because when I painted, I went into states which were almost transcendental. Mm. <laughs> Big word. <laughs> So this was a non-therapeutic induced state or a non-recreational drug induced state, which is actually very good for your health. Yes, it was. It was indeed. I mean, I forgot even to eat. I I forgot to drink my tea. It invariably got cold and it still happens the same way. Well, that might not be very good for getting to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be reminded. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it does bring me on to another topic because we touched on this and we talked about the importance of food. And you had explained to me about your art, your writing, your meditation, visualizations and and how you were starting to visualize a new order world through your stories. And I think this is really an important point, particularly since this (laughs) podcast is through Changemakers. I think you, you sorry, you hit hit on something which we hadn't talked about, because I'm just writing a an adult, a young adult book, which is set in an idealistic world, where nobody falls ill, and because they have a diet um, tuned to each person, so there's no illness in that world, and and there's no death, death as we know it. And it, it has a whole lot of fantasy science thing and it's called Patal Lok Four. Hmm. And this is this is the world the child is taken to during a tsunami when he was just fifteen from India. Fascinating. Yes. Well, we, I think you touched on it very peripherally. I must have been inspired by the powers above to actually start talking about this. But one of the things that struck me in that was that you are using visualization to create a better world. And sometimes change happens because we visualize change and we want change to happen. You know, we might not have all of the resources or we might not have the, the powers on our side, but at least we can start imagining and dreaming a better world. I think it's a strong tool visualization people underestimate it but I, I think it is it is a, a, a way into change mm, yes and indeed and and particularly when you say that this world that you have visualized with no illness and and food might be central to that and that really resonates with um professor Tim Spector who I interviewed last week and we just released his podcast and he was very strong in saying look we have a new philosophy emerging where food can change your destiny and that perhaps you know in a different world in a different life if we make better food choices then the burden of chronic disease will reduce and and your vision may not just be a utopia but it potentially could become a reality what do you think of that i think if you live life thoughtfully and creatively, your intuition tells you what to eat and not to eat. Very often, I think I know what I want to eat and what I don't want to eat. And I select it intuitively, you know, my daily diet. Because I'm a vegetarian, I don't eat fish or meat. So uh, it is important for me to have a balanced diet. But I know that if I 
think what I'm going to eat, visualize it almost, I eat right. Interesting. Well, you know, what you're actually expressing there is an element of personalization. You've said that I use my intuition to tell me what's right. Now, what Tim has done is he's taken that personalization to the next level. So he's actually trying to put science around it where he measures people's lipid and sugar responses. But what you've just said is that potentially, you know, one knows thine own self better than maybe the test tube. But, but, you know, I think that it's a very interesting approach because in order for society at large to adopt this, they need to be convinced. So, you know, the science is actually important together with the art and the creativity and the intuition. I think it's it's a, a balanced approach to try and change behavior. Yes, I, I, I rate science very highly, actually, in the way forward, because without science, nothing would happen that in terms of survival of this planet. Mm. And in my YA book, the scientists actually test each person because each person's needs are different. And food is made centrally. There's no kitchen in anyone's house, but it comes centrally with all the vitamins and nutrients each person individually needs. And no two people are alike, so their food is different. Well, this is exactly Tim Spector's point. It's exactly his point. You'll have to talk to <laughs> I'm him. Glad. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm so glad because I'm writing a book exactly on the same topic. I'm describing in great detail what each person is eating, describing the color, the smell and the taste. And in fact, because it's a different planet, everything grows differently. The shapes of the carrots may not be like the carrots we have. So I think I'd be fascinated to talk to him about this idea of individual choices and how they're determined through science. Yes. And of course, the other spin-off benefit of that is that what's good for the body will hopefully be good for the planet. And that's what will lead to our ultimate survival. Indeed, indeed. So you really are using your imagination, the meditation, the creativity, your writing skills to try and force us all to think about how to have a better world. And But you're also actively involved in helping people on the ground through your charities. And, and you mentioned to me two initiatives. Yes, uh, I think this has gone on uh, quite some time now because my father had left a part of his money to promote education for women. He was a great educationalist and he wanted it linked to a women's college in India. And we did that about 12 years ago. And I think so far there have been 35 women who have been trained and got jobs as scientists because he was wanting them only to study science and scholarships to be first science students. Fascinating. Well, maybe one of them needs to become a food scientist and get a postdoc in Tim's lab. Well, you you don't know where they would be working. Yeah, you don't know. And the other project, the charitable organization that you had, um, tell us about that. Oh, that is my father's school where he was the headmaster. And I visited it and then realized that they were only teaching boys. Girls' education wasn't there. So I helped them to have a wing and they started teaching girls as well. The school goes up to the 10th, 11th standard. And for the six years now, there have been um, girls 
and women teachers as well. And the school has really prospered through that. And I provide uh, them scholarships each year for children who can't afford their fees and uniforms and things of that nature. And with the um, pandemic, I've been sending them extra money so they're not short of good food and other necessities because these are poor people in the villages and the pandemic has really hit that part of the world much worse. Yes, I know. We've heard of the devastation in India and I'm sure even before that it was difficult. But how do you get the money? Do you fundraise? Is this your own money or do you have a fundraising community? Uh, I think for me it has been easy because all my art funds have gone to the school. Each time I had a, a grant from the Arts Council and I sold paintings, I sent them to the school. Wow. So I haven't needed to fundraise. Occasionally somebody has given me a bit with a request that, uh, you know, how their money should be spent. And uh, the money for women's education science scholarships are entirely funded by the family. Interesting. And what is the name of the family um, charity organisation? It's called Ramdeya Kapila Trust and it's a registered charity. It's a very small charity. It's not a, it's not a big charity. But small steps lead to big things. And we will put up a link to that because I'm sure there'll be people listening who might like to donate, however small, to these wonderful um, opportunities for women to shape the future, particularly women who are training in science. That's incredible. I, I love yeah. that. And I've got a very good friend. I've known her for almost 30, 40 years, an Irish friend. She manages the charity. Oh, and what is her name? She's called Rosemary Knox. Oh, lovely. Well, um, I, I don't know Rosemary, but a big shout out to Rosemary as well. That's really, really good work. Yeah, she's a lovely, lovely woman. She's got two daughters and of course she is about the same age as me in, in her 70s. Oh, wonderful. Well, Sunday, thank you so much for talking to me today. I We've learned an awful lot. You've had a, an incredible career from poet to artist to psychotherapist, art therapist, and now visionary writer and supreme meditator as well, leading you to all of these amazing thoughts about changing the world. And then finally, philanthropist. Listen, I'm very, very grateful to you for allowing me this opportunity. And whatever I've said, I meant it. And I hope this world to become a better world. Thank you so much, Sunder. That is really, really kind. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sunder as much as I did. It was fascinating to hear of her journey from poet to artist to art therapist, psychotherapist, and how she's combining all of these modalities to enable people live longer, healthier lives, and also using her creative writing skills to imagine a better life and a better future and a better world. And join in next week as I interview Professor Fergus Shanahan, a world leading researcher on the microbiome and inflammatory bowel disease and a recent author of his book, The Language of Illness, as we learn how to speak a different language that's more understandable for people with illness. And it's going to be a fascinating discussion, so please don't miss it. And as always, if you'd like to leave any feedback, please feel free to do so at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.